Alrighty, everyone. Hello. It is your sleep fairy here, Kayla, delivering you sleep information that you did not ask for. Welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Whew. Um, just to get started, um, so I have all of my podcasts like written out, planned out, like what day I'm going to release a specific episode, what I'm going to, you know, uh, put on Instagram, have a content planner. So I try to plan everything out a month in advance. Um, But over the past few weeks, I felt so uh, lost and confused, lost and confused because it's like with hearing the stories about Tony McDade, hearing the stories about um, Toyin, who was killed in Tallahassee, the two transgender women um, who were killed, like all of these things just really sat on my heart. And it felt, it felt pretty trivial to talk about sleep health. It, it felt pretty, uh, disconnected to, to try and shift and talk about um, anything that it, as related to the podcast. So, and then I was also just trying to figure out how can I make everything work? How can I align myself with being more active in the community for Black people? How can I, you know, do these extracurriculars, these um, personal endeavors, pursue these personal endeavors like the podcast? How can I work my allotted 40 hours and devote the time and energy necessary to that. Balancing all of that, it was a mess. And so I spent the greater half of last week and even the week before just kind of just really resting and just trying to figure out where it is that I want to, what it is that I want to do and where am I going to focus and in giving myself grace enough to understand that I don't have to do it all. Um, I think that's just the trope of black women. Uh, we The trope of a strong black woman, woman, meaning you have to do everything. You have to be resilient. You have to be strong. And, you know, I am, I, I have been tired and exhausted <laughs> over the past two weeks. And I say that unapologetically. Um, it's It's been a lot it seems week after week we hear about another person who has been victimized and, um, you know, killed. And it, it was just, it was just really tiring for me. And so I took a break and I had a talk with my therapist where she just talked about, she spoke to me about small actionable items I could take as related to my activism, small actionable items I could take as related to work, as related to this podcast and not putting, imposing these big goals on myself, um, planning out months, a month in advance, and then getting upset with myself or anxious when I don't fulfill it. Because I'm the type of person, if I don't, um, if I'm not, if I'm not as productive as I'd like to be, if I'm not as um, useful as I'd like to be, my first idea is to kind of, my first method of dealing with it is to just put myself kind of in a slump. And then, you know, I get mad at myself because I, all of the things that I could have done within the scope of a day, I haven't done. Um, Especially when it relates back to, again, my personal endeavors. Work is like one of those things where I can, you know, get myself up to 
make things happen. But when it comes to something that I actually enjoy or just figuring out how I can still find joy in the midst of all of what's happening in the world um, has been an interesting journey. And again, I'm the person that kind of just um, shuts down and uh, I get anxious and I get sad and, um, you know, I'm, I'm learning, learning to just process it all, give myself grace um, to be in a space where I don't know and to give myself grace enough to know that, again, I can't do it all. Um, and that's OK that I can't do it all, but I can do what's in my capacity and I can give myself, um, you know, reasonable goals. So uh, if you have been feeling that way over the past couple of weeks, especially with um, the ongoing news uh, where it seems that we are just steadily like um, accumulating names for hashtags in these weeks since George Floyd, um, I just want you to know that I understand. I am with you and you are not alone. That's the big takeaway. And I hope that, you know, every, each and every one of you who listen to the podcast are able to find understanding in that and just give yourself grace for what you're capable of doing in the moment and give yourself grace enough to rest and decompress in whatever ways suits you best. I did not mean to make that rhyme, but Kayla got bars. (laughs) Okay. Um, Anyway, so what are we going to talk about tonight? To, I, I was I almost said tonight, so like today and tonight. <sighs> okay, um, what are we going to talk about tonight? Um, today, I am titling this episode of this podcast Liberation, and it's liberation in so many ways. I can't wait to dive into it, but today I'm going to be, I'm going to talk about a number of different things, but the main topic is going to be sleep deprivation. So a few, a week or so ago, I came across an Instagram post and it was one of those cute little graphics um, where it had like bubbly letters and sparkles. And the quote that was on this particular graphic said, I'm always tired. And so I thought to myself, why is that a brag? Like, why why do we normalize exhaustion and why do we think it's cool to say things like that? And we don't, we take it with a grain of salt, right? Like we'll repost something like that and we're like, yeah, relatable content or accurate. And it's like, you're not really thinking about you're, you're really fucking tired or you feel fucking exhausted. And yet you still, compromise your sleep for the sake of whatever it is that you're doing. Um, And it just made me think about sleep deprivation and all of the consequences of sleep deprivation. And then, of course, like putting that into perspective, I thought about grind culture and the toxicity of grind culture. I listened to a podcast a few weeks ago about... uh, Uh, rest as resistance. And it was from this phenomenal woman that I came across named Trisha Hershey. 
And she founded an organization called the NAP Ministry. It was founded in 2016. It's an organization that examines the liberating power of NAPs. So they use performance art. They use art site installations, immersive workshops for community healing. And so Trisha did an interview with uh, Ayana Young from For the Wild. And I would highly recommend that you all listen to this conversation because they were examining the parallels between slavery and plantation labor to grind culture. And so it started to get me through these four questions, which I'm going to tackle here in, you know, the podcast, this episode. So the first question was, where does grind culture come from? The second was, how, why have we normalized exhaustion? The third is, what can we learn from sleep deprivation science? And then how is rest a resistant act? And so it brought me, when I listened to their conversation, it brought me into a taking a look at the history of grind culture. And I thought to myself, like, where did this even begin? Um, How did this even come about? So Congress passed the Adamson Act in 1916, establishing an eight-hour workday for interstate railroad workers. Prior to that, Americans primarily worked in manufacturing and industrial capacities where the routine was 10 to 12-hour workdays. And before the Civil War, so before 18, uh, 1860, let's say one, when uh, Lincoln, because once Lincoln came into office, literally the Civil War kicked off the following year. So prior to that, slave labor was a major driver of the workforce in America. Um, and slaveholders did a magnificent, I'm like, well, magnificent is the wrong word, but slaveholders did a pretty um, diligent job of, of tracking their workers' hours. So tracking the slaves' hours as related to production and as a related to, uh, you know, what they were able to uh, do within the scope of a day. And of course, you're examining, um, of course, like this person is also taking into account like the weather. So how much, how much can, how many uh, barrels of co- of cotton can my slaves produce in, you know, on a hot summer day versus a winter day? How many barrels of cotton can they produce if they haven't been fed? How many barrels can they produce if, um, if they start work at 5 a.m. So slaves often worked from dusk till dawn. And with Sunday typically being the only day off, 15 to 16 hours of hard labor, six days a week was normal. And your your uh, breaks, if any, I, I'm highly, I highly doubt that slaves gave, slave owners and masters gave their slaves breaks. But when we think about the fact that, you know, this is um, the what I just mentioned about Sunday being the only day off, that is a kindness. Doesn't necessarily mean that every slave in America had Sunday off, but it was it was not uncommon for them to have at least one day off from work. Um, but that kindness of having a day off or even having breaks was totally dependent on the master. So if you had someone who was evil, 
or you had someone who had little to no empathy. And again, like you have to think about the fact that slaves were property. So this person made an investment and he expects a yield on his investment. He expects to return on his investment. Um, and often, you know, this was at the, uh, you know, of course, like this was the at the detriment to the actual slave because there wasn't very much consideration for their mental and physical well-being. It, it was just all about producing. Um, so then to go in, in to say uh, a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, who described the American Civil War as a general strike because of the hundreds of thousands of enslaved people who stopped their work. Um, Emancipation Proclamation proceeded there afterwards. And then here we are in the West um, and we're taught to valorize grind culture and assign success or status to those who work hard to the point of exhaustion. Um, and uh, Trisha Hershey mentioned that grind culture is a continuation of what was happening on plantation plantations centuries ago. Um, if you had told me this years back, I would have never made this correlation. But when I think about the remnants of what what exists today as it relates to productivity, I can't help but think about what happened on plantations here in America and across the world as it related to slave labor. We still equate our worth to how much we can produce. And again, there are so many different um, historical uh, uh Con historical ways that we can examine this and where we can actually back it up. Um, the history of the 40-hour work week is not very long. Um, it came into effect with um, Henry Ford uh, advocating for it. But at, at the end of the day, like we know people even today who work way beyond 40 hours per week and we assign exhaustion, we assign um, we assign being tired to a status symbol when in fact it's really the thing that's shortening our lives and it leads to uh, a lot of detrimental health impacts later on. And um, there's a quote from the New York, New York Times Magazine that says, American slavery is necessarily imprinted on the DNA of American capitalism. The fact that we were able to utilize people in a way that allowed us to um, take this country to where, take this country to levels of where it is now. And that same mentality, that same um type of uh, way of working and living your life is is remnant, is reminiscent of how we choose to work today. And I thought about the quotes of, uh, you know, we say things like we work ourselves like a slave and um, working yourself to the bone. And looking at the historical context of that, right, it's a uh, it's so interesting, but this conversation that I listened to from For the Wild was just so um, eye-opening for me because I think about how um, how that has 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 uh, has carried over into even my life. I was the person who bragged about always being tired. I I, mentioned, I I remember specifically saying things. I'm always tired, just like I'm always hungry. 
Um, because I was the person who worked 60, 70 hour days. Sometimes I would sleep in the studio just to get a few moments of rest. But even you can't really rest in your workplace, right? Like how can you actually (laughs) feel comfortable enough? Because there's always something that you have to do that you're thinking about. And even when it came to my practice of yoga, because I worked in a studio, there was never really a moment where I felt like I could truly disconnect and decompress because, again, I'm thinking about all of the things that I need to do for work. And while I appreciated the, the, the outcome of the money, what is it that is being compromised as a result of me making more money, right? So I am compromising my health. I'm compromising my, my worth, I'm compromising my well-being. I'm compromising my friendships, my relationships. All of these things are being compromised for the sake of capitalism. I am willing to drive myself to the point of exhaustion and burnout just so that this company can earn more and more money. And again, slaveholders were able to take a very detailed examine detailed notes of how productive their slaves were. And it is the same thing that's happening today where companies pay lots of money to industrial and organizational psychologists. They pay a lot of money to examine how how can people be more productive? How can we get the most yield out of our investment? They're paying you. So how can we get more out of these out of these people? And it's up to us to get more real about what's happening and and how this has has impacted all of us. Um, And it brings me to Bob Marley, um, who said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. For yoga teachers, we play Bob Marley in our classes, and this is black and white yoga teachers um, alike. But I want to specifically talk about white yoga teachers and just yoga teachers of color who utilize Bob Marley's, uh, you know, music in their classes. But we don't examine the historical context behind what he's actually saying. So Redemption Song is about the slave being stolen away from their homeland. And he talks about how we have the power to free ourselves from the bottomless pit and into the light. A few weeks ago, I talked about the mantra, Ong Namo Guru Dev Namo, which means I bow to and honor the divine light, the divine teacher within myself. Yoga means union. It is the unification of positive and negative. It is the unification of comfort and discomfort. It is the unification of dark and light. As we start to, uh, you know, as, as the hashtags start to accumulate, but the protests start to dwindle, it's important for white and POC yoga teachers, especially because you are responsible for holding space for people. You are looked at as a facilitator of peace and understanding. You are the one who holds the reins as it relates to people's calm, as it relates to people finding um, finding a moment to themselves. So I think it's the responsibility of yoga teachers really to look at the historical context of the music that you're playing, in particular Bob Marley, because he, he was 
he spoke so strongly about black people and the black experience. It's one thing to play his music in your class and it's another thing to actually listen to what's being said, to actually listen to the words that you're singing along to because it's about a journey. And we, as yoga teachers, we talk so much about finding comfort in the uncomfortable, but what I am finding from a lot of yoga teachers is microaggressions. So microaggressions, you're talking about Gandhi, who blatantly used colorism and talked about the, and, and dis, discounted black people. We're using peace and Martin Luther King to talk about uh, how we should be as if black people have not utilized peace in their messaging as if black people were not uh, peaceful or as, as if black people are always violent. These are microaggressions that you need to be cognizant of when you are telling people to, oh, if only the world was just peaceful, or if only people were able to be peaceful, how, how can, it's such a slap in the face. It's such a slap in the face to black yoga teachers, to black yogis to talk about these things as if, Martin Luther King was not assassinated for being a disruptor. He was peaceful. He advocated ahimsa, nonviolence, and he still was shot. So taking a look at all of those things and understanding where it comes from and knowing that you have a responsibility as a yoga teacher, as the person who's holding the space to teach your students more, to have the uncomfortable conversations this is all about finding comfort in the uncomfortable. And whether you are a friend of mine, whether you are a, a, a colleague, whatever you want to call yourself, for a lot of people this time, people don't want to be made to be a victim. Nobody wants to be called a racist. But we teach our students in yoga to find comfort in the uncomfortable. And knowing that this is an unprecedented time that we're living in, we're in a pandemic, we are uh, seeing a racial upheaval. And it's not your time to be quiet, nor is it your time to be, uh, um, it's not your time to be comfortable. You know, there's no one will ever, un, un, unless you're black, you will never understand what it's like to be in constant heightened awareness. So it's the responsibility of my white yoga teachers, my white friends, my POC yoga teachers, my POC friends to do their due diligence in examining the ways in which you can be uncomfortable and have these conversations that are necessary. The right time to talk about it probably wasn't at the start of the year, but now is the perfect time. Now is the perfect time to do your research. Now is the perfect time to listen more closely to these songs like Bob Marley's Redemption song. Now is the time for you to get uncomfortable and to unpack and to unlearn so that way you can be of better use to the people that need it. And for my Black people that are listening, it's our time to rest. Like I mentioned to you at the start of this episode, I was tired. I was exhausted. I didn't know where to start, where to begin, because it felt as if I was climbing a mountain and more bodies were being placed on top of it. And rather than us looking at rest as something that's going to stop or uh, um, hold us back from achieving what we need to, understand that your best self is your most rested self. 
Your best self is your most rested self. And it is a time for you to reflect. It is a time for you to heal. It is a time for you to take care. So I answered where does grind culture come from, just giving a brief historical context about where that stems from. And again, I would recommend that you listen to For the Wild, the podcast, the interview with Trisha Hershey, as she uh, examines the parallels between slavery and plantation labor to our current grind culture and just capitalism in general. I'll also share a few articles as it relates to um, some things that I found about um, just the just the the commonplace, the correlation between capitalism of today and what it was like, um, you know, on the plantation. So my second question that I wanted to ask was, why have we normalized exhaustion? Um and we normalized it just because if we look at how we've normalized anything else, right? So I mentioned before that uh, American slaveholders, um, while they were skilled business people, their empathy and their kindness was the determining factor as related to their slaves getting work, their slaves getting breaks, I'm sorry. Um, and the normalization of exhaustion comes from that as well. So think about how we see rest as a privilege rather than an actual biological phenomenon. Like you know that you need to eat, drink, you need you know you need to eat healthy foods, you know you need to drink water, you know you need to exercise, but when it com- and you won't most people don't compromise those things. Like you you absolutely know that they're a necessity for your survival. But when it comes to sleep, we don't view it the same way because that is one of the things that we are willing to put on the back burner um, for the sake of being productive. That's what we're willing to put on the back burner for the sake of being, uh, you know, productive. And um, so just like, uh, you know, our uh, on the slave on the plantations, uh, slaveholders tracked um, enslaved people's productivity with a level of attention akin to that used by most contemporary factory managers. It's again ties into how we view rest as a privilege. So back then, if your slaveholder was nice enough to let you get a break or to let you get like a glass of water, that was a that was that was very nice of them to do that. So it's no different. Now where we're like, oh my gosh, I have, I actually have time to take a nap. I actually have time to sit down and meditate and do, you know, some of the things that I like to do. That's a privilege, but we have to dismantle that that idea of rest as a privilege because it's a biological phenomenon that will literally shorten the years on your life if you do not get it right. And there are so many research studies that point to the importance of sleep deprivation. So I shared on my Instagram that sleep deprivation leads to a number of different cognitive deficits. Um, And there's reasons why we now, at least in Florida, where you'll see signs of um, not to drive drowsy. And these signs are in place because we are starting to see how drowsiness is just as detrimental, if not worse, than someone driving drunk. 
Why? Because at least in, you know, I'm reading this book called Why We Sleep. It's by Matthew Walker. And he talked about how, and this is not funny, but he talked about um, when you're, when you fall asleep at the wheel, there is, there is nothing there that will stop you from merging into ongoing traffic, driving into a ditch. Your, your ass is asleep. You're asleep. So there's nothing that can control that. While like if you're awake and you're drunk, you might swerve and you might do these other things, but you're 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 awake enough to at least start to to make some type of uh you know change, immediate change if something happens. But think about when you start to nod off. You don't even hear. You you stop to you stop hearing. You you stop seeing it. And I think about my own father, who my dad um, works at United, and he's worked there for decades. But my dad was um, one who used to sleep in his car. He used to sleep at the airport, and he used to drive drowsy. And there was an incident where he got into an accident because he had fell asleep. And I remember being so upset and so so uh, mad because I'm I'm thinking about how many hours he's working for his family and the fact that he has to jeopardize his life for the sake of work. Um, and then also too, just knowing that someone is t- like, if you're tired, guys, like please find a safe space to just rest. 30 minutes. And then once you have taken that nap, no, you cannot immediately go in to start driving. You cannot do that. There is such a thing called sleep inertia. Like when you wake up out of a sleep, whether it's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and um, you're still not in a state of wakefulness, there's a transition that has to happen. Um, which is why, like, even when we go to sleep, right? So, uh, you know, light tells your brain to wake up. It tells your brain, to, you know, there there are so many signals that are sent to the brain. So we have, when we get out of bed, we have a whole routine, right? Like some people have motion sensor lights now, but you maybe walk to the bathroom. You might sit down. You might stay on the toilet for a little long, um, just kind of gathering yourself. Um, but maybe eventually you turn on the light. You start to brush your teeth. You start to go through your morning routine. But there's still a lag there. So that's something that we have to be cognizant of. But again, going back to how we've normalized exhaustion and normalized it because of the historical context of slavery. Um, and some people really, again, like they might think it's a reach. Like you might say like, get out of here. But when you think about, again, um, how, how much, how we went to war for slavery. That's how profitable the industry was for us. That's how profitable it was. We went to war for it. The Southern states seceded from the United States to keep it intact. Millions of people, I don't remember, I don't remember the exact number, but we lost a lot of people in the Civil War. We went to war for slavery. That's what the Confederacy was. They wanted to keep slavery. They wanted to keep the business of slavery intact. And so as we start to move out of slavery, you can think about the fact that these businesses, these corporations, these people 
who had, you know, systems in place for their slaves, they're looking for work. They're looking for people to follow along the same type of guidelines while they're getting paid. Nonetheless, they are still working themselves to the very bone. Think about the concept of what golden years is like. So I think about boomers and I think about the generation before who worked and worked and worked and worked for 40, 50 years. And in their golden years were their 60s and their 70s when they were close to death. Right. So now that you're 60, you can retire and be happy. Fuck that. That's why people that's why older the older generations have an issue. They think the idea of us wanting balance in our lives is outlandish. Um, But really, your golden years should be all the years of your life. All the years of your life should be golden. You should be able to balance work, rest, sleep, all of these things. All of these things are are important. But again, the previous generation and the generation before that, the idea of that seems crazy. Why does it seem crazy? Because the normal, the normalcy was working. You went to work. You worked 10, 12-hour days. You took very little breaks. You only had a, a, maybe a day or a day or two off. You, that, like, uh, there's, there are so many parallels that we can look at through history. So it's not unfounded, but I, I challenge you to take a look at it and to see how this is impacting us today. And again, we have to dismantle, we have to dispel the myth of rest is privilege. We have to understand that rest Sleep is a biological phenomenon and we have to stop fighting against it and we have to embrace it for the most important routine of our life. So going back to uh, the question, now we're at what can we learn from sleep deprivation science? Um, I've spoken a little bit on my Instagram about um, sleep deprivation and again, I just mentioning previously, like I said, it, it's we are looking at the the similarities between sleep deprivation and uh, being completely intoxicated. And it turns out that sleep deprivation, chronic sleep deprivation, leads to uh, cognitive deficits. So uh, participants in particular in task related studies have slower response times. Um, Participants are more likely to make mistakes. Um, And, you know, in thinking about these things, it's important for us to note that, you know, if you if you're impaired in your decision making, then it also translates over to just your ability to make decisions. So moral reasoning, insight and creativity. And you can think about how you feel when you're extremely tired and, you know, you don't you have very little patience. just like you know, someone who has a hangover, right? It's it's a it's there. There are similarities between those two. Um, so, thinking about that, and also I want to touch on the fact that we cannot make up for lost sleep. Um, so Harvard has taken a look at um, people who have consistently slept two out six hours for two weeks straight, and then they use maybe a day or two to get ten hours of consistent sleep, and you know. Examining that as it related to, as it relates to performance related tasks, these people there is no there, it's impossible for you to make up for sleep loss. 
Um, once it's gone, it's gone. Again, you have slower response times. The acuity diminishes, starts to decrease. So that accuracy um, that you that you might have had with a regular um, sleep schedule, a, a, a you know a healthier sleep sleep schedule, um, you compromise that. Um, so uh, I just want to share a study from um, this book called Why We Sleep. And he was testing, and, and this book, again, is by Matthew Walker. And they tested a theory using daytime naps. Um, so if, you th- if you've been following me for a while, you know that I've talked about the different um, sleep patterns. So in society today, we have a monophasic sleep pattern that we've adapted. Um, the monophasic sleep pattern came as a result of industrialization of the fact that we work more. So monophasic meaning that we sleep during one part of the day. So we try to get in seven to eight hours of rest towards the nighttime, and then we wake up and we go back to it. But that is, that isn't our, uh, natural, um, natural way of sleeping. Uh, If you've noticed that in the afternoon, you get a dip in alertness, you start to get a little tired towards the afternoon. Um, That's, that's a biological sensation that's happening. But we often fight against it using caffeine, right? So, you know, towards maybe 12 or 1130, you have a second cup of coffee, or you take an energy shot or whatever it is. So that we have a biphasic sleep pattern that we've been able to examine in tribes in Namibia, in a lot of, uh, you know, tribes that have um, stuck to life pre-industrialization. So in these tribes, we see that they take 30 to 60 minute naps in the mid-afternoon, and they also uh, have their rest uh, towards the latter half of the day. So they sleep in two parts. But again, what we do, we just save all of our rest for one part of the day and we go against um, the afternoon nap because, again, we are trying to be our most productive selves. But there is a bit of research where uh, researchers looked at a group of 23,000 Greeks who ended siesta practices. And these Greeks were aged from 20 to 83 years of age. And none of them had any prior history of uh, coronary heart disease. But the, re- the research found over six years that those people who ended their siesta practice, so, uh, you know, European countries practicing the siesta where they take a break um, in the mid-afternoon, they shut down for business. So those who had stopped that siesta practice, they were almost uh, six times more likely to develop heart-related diseases in comparison to those who practiced siesta who took naps. Like I said before, your best self is your most rested self. And, you know, in other Greek islands, they are finding that those people who continuously practice siesta live longer. Um, Again, because they're not opening the door to metabolic diseases. They're not opening the door to coronary uh, heart-related issues, memory memory problems. Later on in life, they're able to... um, live happily. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting for us to point that out, but I want to share a particular study that uh, Dr. Walker did using daytime naps. So they recruited a group of healthy young adults and randomly divided them into a nap group and a no-nap group. 
At noon, all of the participants underwent a rigorous session of learning 100 face name pairs um, intended to tax the area of the brain that's responsible for uh, short-term memory. So both groups um, at that noon time performed, you know, in a comparative style. Um, they performed at the same level. But soon after, the NAP group took a 90-minute siesta in the sleep lab, um, and then the no-grap NAP group stayed awake in the lab and performed activities like browsing the internet or playing board games. And then later that day at 6 p.m., they retested them on that same um, intensive learning task uh, where they tried to cram another set of new facts into their short-term memory um, and so they were looking at whether the learning capacity decreases um, with continued time awake across the day. And if so, can we reverse um, the effect and thus restore learning ability? So Dr. Walker found that those who were awake throughout the day became progressively worse at learning, even though their ability to concentrate remained stable. In contrast, those who napped did markedly better and actually improved in their capacity to memorize facts. The difference between the group, two groups at 6 p.m. was not small. It was a 20% learning advantage for those who slept. Um, so, and then, so they also, again, wanted to examine um, the learning capacity of the human brain um, I'm sorry, they wanted to look at the reverse, if the saturation effect and thus restore learning, and, and could they restore learning ability? So to talk a little bit about the, the saturation effect. So I mentioned before that um, oftentimes when we have that dip in alertness in the middle of the afternoon that goes against our biphasic sleep pattern, we take a sip of coffee, we take an energy drink. But what's happening, um, so even with you know your intake of caffeine your the 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 hormone in your brain that makes the neurochemical in your brain that makes you sleepy that gives you that makes you tired it's called adenosine that still accumulates even though caffeine it's blocking its receptors from attaching so even though you are you know taking multiple sips of coffee adenosine is steadily increasing thus so it makes sense why like when you have a day where you might pull an all-nighter or you've been up for 16, 17 hours, why you just kind of crash and burn and you sleep for 12 or 14 hours. It's because you've you've allowed this chemical to accumulate so much in your brain. But over time, that is not good. Chronic sleep deprivation, the, that is not a good pattern, a good habit to, to develop. Um, so again, Dr. Walker, um, looked at the fact that we, again, we cannot make up for lost sleep. Um, but what's happening in the brain is that when we do rest, your hippocampus, the area that's responsible for your short-term memory actually just starts to prune. So it's like creating space for new memories to be learned. But when you don't sleep, it's like you can't get that information, the, the what you that information out of your head. Um, so you're more likely again to make mistakes. There's no resetting, there's no recycling of what's happening. It's just there. Um, so you know it makes it harder to learn new information. 
And um, one of one of the other things I wanted to touch on that I found absolutely fascinating was uh, how sleep and napping uh, relates to performance, human performance. So not only just on task-related issues, but just even for our athletes, right? So I work at House of Athlete. Um, You know, I see a lot of uh, uh, professional football players, those training for the combine, um, young kids who are training for baseball and all types of different sports. But, you know, we oftentimes, especially um, coaches and just the ways that we have, if you've ever, if you were a collegiate athlete or just a high school athlete, you know that you might wake up super early in the morning and then um, you practice really early in the morning. Um, But, you know, in thinking about just like the ways in which we should be sleeping, it can be disruptive to your sleep pattern if you are uh, jarred to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. Um, And then you're also forced to, you know, go to class and um, do everything else throughout your day and you don't really have a space and time to rest. um, And then your body starts to naturally pick up this rhythm. So um, Dr. Walker mentions in his book, he talks about uh, Usain Bolt, who is an Olympic champion. And uh, he They said, it says, uh, the 100-meter sprint superstar Usain Bolt has, on many occasions, taken naps in the hours before breaking the world record and before Olympic finals in which he won gold. Um, The studies show his own sleep, show his uh, wisdom. Sorry. The studies support his wisdom. Daytime naps that contain sufficient numbers of sleep spindles also offer significant motor skill memory improvement together with a restoring benefit on perceived energy and reduced muscle fatigue. What are sleep spindles? Um, Sleep spindles are these tiny little waves of electrical activity that appear on um, EEGs. And what's so fascinating about sleep spindles is that... um, they are, uh, they, people who have strong sleep spindles are hard to wake up. And they're hard to wake up because their brains are actively working to process memories, to process emotions. Um, So you, if you've ever noticed those people who, like, you might be able to play something really loud or a door slams and they're still asleep, they have these strong sleep spindles. And think about how that might relate to someone who's learning something new, whether it's a new language, a new activity, a new a new um, guideline, a new whatever. Um, And when you're able to sleep on that information, you're able to process it, and then you're able to you know, uh, regurgitate it in a more efficient and accurate way. But when you uh, subject yourself to deprived sleep, you start to uh, take away from that acuity. So it's really interesting to think about how um, daytime naps can literally uh, offer such huge benefits, especially for athletes. And um, there's also some studies that show that uh, those who are um, those who do get regular uh, sleep and um, uh, take naps, they're less they're less prone to injury. Um, 
So sleep loss in sports sports injury um, increases. So for those who consistently sleep six hours, they are almost um, they were found in this particular study to be at a 70 percent chance of injury opposed to those who had nine hours average sleep. They are on about in between 10 to 20 percent risk of injury. So just that alone was so insightful. Um, and I'm I'm happy to share this information in a post on Instagram. So be on the lookout for that. But, you know, again, it just ties back into your best self is your most rested self. And to prioritize the your rest, to prioritize your sleeping. Um, rest is not, rest may not always be a nap. Sometimes it might be meditation. Sometimes it might be a little bit of movement, um, quiet, reading a book, but giving yourself that space, knowing that you naturally have this dip in alertness in the middle afternoon. And rather than fighting against it or taking that second cup of coffee, maybe you actually honor what's happening. Again, it's a biological phenomenon, so you should not ignore it. You know, your body is very, very intelligent, your brain even more. So listening to your body, listening to what's actually happening, so that way you can make impactful change for you. Um, And the last question that I wanted to cover was, uh, how is rest a resistant act? (laughs) I just said it. So we resist tiredness. We resist um, our natural phenomenon to sleep. We want to stay up late. We want to get as much done, get as much as we can done in our days. And it's at the cost of our lives. It's at the cost of our memory. It's at the cost of our well-being. It's at the cost of our performance. It's at the cost of injuring ourselves. Um, So many different studies that examine the the impacts of sleep loss. And to be honest, it's, it's way too expensive Um, when you look at it long-term to compromise sleep for the sake of business, which, which makes it a resistant act within itself to rest and to sleep and to take naps and to honor your body. Um, also thinking about rest as a resistant act and tying that into capitalism you know, the the nature of business is to continuously make profit. But when you think about how, how, you know, how sleep loss can literally lead to a decline in our performance, it can lead to a decline in our acuity. It makes more sense for you to do the defiant thing and to rest than to continuously try to work yourself to the bone. Rest is resistance because it goes against the fuckery of what slavery was. Slavery told us, Black people, that we it was a privilege to rest. Slavery told us as Black people that we could not afford to do it. Who are you to rest? Who are you to find joy? And I think about Breonna Taylor, who was literally resting, who was sleeping in her home, and she was killed. I think about um, little Ayana, who was seven years old. She was resting, 
in her grandmother's lap on a couch and she was killed. Same way that Brianna was killed, cops rushed into her house, no knocks, no warning, but they rushed in there and they both of those women lost their lives. And even thinking about Rayshard Brooks, Rayshard Brooks was sleeping in a drive-thru and all of that culminated into him losing his life. And when someone's running away from you, and I have to say this about Rayshard Brooks, when someone's running away from you, they are no longer a threat. No matter if they punched you in the face, it doesn't matter if they tased you. (sighs) Someone running away from you is not a threat. I have to say that. But again, going back to how so many things are acts of resistance as it relates to black people, rest, sleep, joy, unapologetic um, behavior, being authentic to who you are, selling cigarettes on a sidewalk, walking into a space with a counterfeit $20 bill, playing with a toy gun, having a broken taillight. All of these things are acts of defiance in the eyes of the oppressor. And it's all the more reason why we have to normalize sleep. We have to normalize healing. We have to normalize being unapologetic. We have to normalize black joy. We have to normalize uh, all of these things. We have to dismantle it. And that's why what's happening right now in the world is so important because it has to be dismantled. It's been going on for centuries. The first slaves, 20 slaves, arrived in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. 1619. So it's four centuries worth of trauma. It's four centuries worth of capitalism. It's four centuries of normalized slave labor. It's too long and it's time for us to break that shit apart. So when I mention rest is resistance, when I mention that joy is an act of defiance, it goes against all of what we've been told is normal. It goes against all of what was told to our ancestors of what was normal. And we have to be the change. We have to be on the right side of history to examine the ways in which we can be better. So rest in peace to the the Brianna Taylors. Rest in peace to the Rayshard Brooks. Rest in peace to the Tamir Rices. Rest in peace to the Eric Garners. Rest in peace to the Sandra Blands. Rest in peace to the Trayvon Martins. Because in their innocence, because in their being, they were targets and ultimately victims of systematic of systemic racism. Rest is a form of resistance. Joy is a form of resistance. Being who you are is a form of resistance. And it's time again for us to make the change, to normalize resting, to normalize taking breaks, to normalize not being okay. Rather than normalizing exhaustion, rather than normalizing having to be so ridiculously resilient, why do we always have to be resilient? Why do we always have to be strong? Again, going back to yoga, what the word yoga actually means, it means it's union. So it's every part of the things that you don't like, 
into what you actually like. And part of being uncomfortable, part of growth means that you have to break down. You have to break down in order to rise up. It's all part of the journey. And again, rather than normalizing exhaustion, rather than normalizing being tired, we can start to normalize rest. We can start to normalize talking about your feelings. We can rationalize, we can normalize being imperfect. We can can start to embrace so many different things and to get away from tying our worth to how productive we are. Because at the end of the day, no one is going to put in your obituary that you work 70 hours a week. No one is going to put that in your obituary. They might say you're a hard worker, but at the cost of what? It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to dismantle the systems that hold us down and put us in places that lead to inactivity, that lead to non-productivity. It's time for us to dismantle those things. Again, the best version of you is the most rested version of you. (sighs) All right. um, I have talked enough. I'm going to leave y'all with that. And to just reflect on that, take a look at what's happening in the world. Take the breaks that you need. Rest, decompress, sleep, 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 sleep. I'm going to be sharing all of what I mentioned here um, throughout the week on Instagram. If you don't follow, um, it's at lay with K. Uh, Find me on Instagram at S-P-R-D-L-O-V-E, spread love. And um, I want to leave you all with, again, that Bob Marley quote, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Om Namo Gurudev Namo, my friend. You are the light. You are the teacher. Everything you need is right within you. All of it. Trust it. Believe in it. Namaste.